Welcome to the Three Creeks Church Podcast. We're a church in Gahanna, Ohio, that exists to help people find and follow God. We hope this message encourages you, challenges you, and helps you discover how much God really loves you. Good morning. My name is Joel, and I get to be the pastor here, and welcome to Three Creeks. If you're here and you're part of the family, it's, uh, it's, we, we missed a week last week, so uh, glad to be back together. And if you are new, if you're visiting with us, uh, we just want to say welcome. We're so glad that you're here. We're going to start a brand new series today in the book of First Peter. And I've been waiting, uh, our church is about four years old, as previously mentioned by Jeff, and I've been, I feel like I've been waiting for four years to get to teach through First Peter. It's one of my favorite books of the whole Bible, and I'm excited to do it. I also know that it's Super Bowl Sunday, and many of you are excited about the Bengals. <laughs> You're hesitant because you know the odds are stacked against you, but that's okay. We, we us Ohio people, we, we'll, we'll root with you. Uh, last weekend, or I guess it was two weekends ago for the AFC Championship, I got a text during church from my father-in-law, and it was to a group of us that text about football games, and he said, please, no one text me. Please, no one call me. Don't tell me anything about the game because I'm traveling from Florida, and so I'm going to watch, I'm going to tape it, and I'm going to watch it tonight. And so, you know, we were like, okay, let's, let's not do that. My father-in-law got to the airport, and as soon as the, uh, the, he didn't want anyone in the airport to tell him anything, he didn't want anybody in the plane to tell him anything, so he got his AirPods or his headphones and stuck them in and kept his head down and a hat down and just listened to music for six hours in a row, all the way until he got home. His phone was off the whole time. And then at about seven o'clock that night, he pushed play. The game was in the afternoon, right? So he pushed play that night and watched the whole thing, probably every commercial. I mean, just enjoyed it four hours later than it actually was. And I was, I was feeling for him because you guys remember what the score was at halftime. It wasn't looking good for the Bengals. They were down, I don't know, 21 to three or something like that. And I was feeling for him because I just imagined that he was, he was discouraged. He was perhaps experiencing despair. He probably went to the fridge and got extra food to calm him down. And I just, I wanted to call him and I wanted to be like, hey, Doug, it's going to be okay, man. You got to just, just wait until it plays out. And I can imagine, you know, every penalty that was called against the Bengals and every time that Joe Burrow would get sacked or incomplete or they would turn it over on downs, I imagine Doug would just be full of discouragement and despair. There's no way we can come back and beat the mighty Chiefs. But what did they do? They came back and they beat the Chiefs. And I wanted to call Doug the whole time and be like, Doug, just hang on. Let it play out. Don't turn it off. There is hope. There is hope. I didn't call him because I wanted him to experience it for himself. But I wanted to call and tell him, there is hope. Wait until you see this thing play out. And the book of 1 Peter is like that phone call. It's Peter calling people that are in the middle of something very difficult. They're suffering. They're discouraged. They're facing persecution. And the theme of the whole book of 1 Peter is, hang on, just wait. There is hope. The game isn't over. There is hope. And so we're naming the whole series there is hope. And today I want to kind of give you a flyover of 1 Peter, tell you about Peter. I'm going to tell you about who he wrote to. And I'm going to show you the first thing that Peter puts their attention on. I'm going to show you that Peter doesn't go straight to their problems and how to fix them. 
he points them to something else completely. He just, he says, get your eyes off of your problems and put your eyes on this. The message is that there is hope. Hang on. If you have your Bibles, you can turn in them or turn them on and go to the book of 1 Peter. It's towards the back. If you hit 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John or Revelation, you've gone too far. Uh, flip back a couple pages, you'll find 1st Peter. And the first verse says this. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And there could be an entire sermon, maybe a whole series, just on those six words. Just on the first word. Just the fact, just the person of Peter. I can relate a little bit to Peter. Because Peter is kind of a normal guy. A lot of the other books in the New Testament were written by Paul. And Paul is like a, a rich theologian. He, Paul was, had uh, wrote with eloquence. He was, he describes himself as a Pharisee of Pharisees. He graduated with highest honors, summa cum laude. Peter is a guy who is a fisherman. Like all he knows is the difference between a carp and a crappy. I mean, he's just a normal, regular guy. Think, think Peter, excuse me, think Paul white collar and think Peter blue collar. Think Paul Whole Foods, think Peter Aldi's. You know what I'm saying? I can relate to this guy. Peter is rash, and he talks way too quickly. He has a serious case of what I call foot-in-mouth disease. He's being reprimanded a lot by Jesus, but he's also the, the unofficial, no doubt about it, leader of the 12 disciples, the 12 key men that follow Jesus around. Peter's the one that's written about by far the most. Peter's the one who went out and walked on water with Jesus. Peter's the one who he was invited into all, all, the, all the stories where, you know, Jesus would have 12 disciples, but then when, when three disciples would kind of get to do something special with Jesus, Peter was always there. Peter was there when Jesus raised a little girl from the dead. Peter was there when Jesus fed 5,000 people with a couple loaves of bread and a couple fish. Peter was always there. Peter was the first disciple that was called. And, and Peter, you guys, listen Remember how faithful Peter was on the night that Jesus was betrayed. Do you remember? They have the, the Last Supper, and Jesus goes out to the garden, and he's arrested. He's falsely accused. He's being interrogated. He's being beaten. And Peter is watching from the sideline, and three different times people go, Hey, I think you're, you're one of the guys that was following Jesus around. And, and listen how faithful Peter was even in that really hard time. In all three of those occasions, Peter said, I have no idea who this guy is. He absolutely abandons Jesus. He betrays Jesus. He denies him three different times. In Jesus' darkest moment, think of all that Peter experienced with his own eyes. All the miracles that he saw Jesus do. And in, the, in that moment, he said, I have no idea who this guy is. Leave me alone. But what's amazing about Peter is that his story, we can relate because I don't know about you, but I also have missed the mark a couple times in my love for Jesus. But grace, 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 grace. When Jesus resurrects from the dead, he actually has this breakfast on a beach with a couple of the disciples and Peter is there and he asks Peter three different times this is in the book of John in chapter 21 he asks Peter three different times do you love me and in all three instances Peter says yes I love you Jesus extends this this olive branch you denied me three times 
I'm going to ask you if you love me three times. And he reinstates Peter and brings Peter back into the fold. And then Peter was there when Jesus ascended into heaven. And Peter was there when the Holy Spirit came on the people at Pentecost, just a couple days after Jesus ascended into heaven. And Peter, in Acts chapter 2, which is the story of the start of the Christian church, Peter is the first guy ever to preach the gospel after Jesus went to heaven. He gave the first sermon. He was the first pastor. And for the rest of his life, I'll call it 35 years. Jesus was born about 0 AD, and he was killed and crucified at, we'll say, 33 AD. These are rough guesses, but it was about that time. And 30 years later, in about 63 or 64 AD, Peter writes a letter, and we have it in our Bibles as 1 Peter. And these were 30 really hard years. It was not cool to be a Christian. He was an outsider for 30 years. And during those 30 years, Christians from Jerusalem were going all over the known world. This is a map of the world at that time. And you can actually see when Abigail read that passage earlier, she named all those places that are hard to pronounce. Look at them. Bithynia, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia. This is all the known world. And Christians over those 30 years began spreading all over the place and starting these small churches. And Peter writes 1 Peter to all of those Christians to, to teach them and encourage them. And I think that one of the reasons, I, I'm just, I'll just say it this way. This is the perfect time for our church to go through the book of 1 Peter because we have a little bit more in common with these people than you think. These people that are scattered all over the place, we have a lot in common with them. And so what Peter wrote to them, we can take it as it's being written to us in many ways too because our lives in our country as it stands would be similar in a lot of ways to what those people would have been experienced. The people who are following Jesus in all of these places are in the minority. They're, they're not Christian cities. It's not cool to be a Christian. They're the outsiders. They're the odd ones. It's not socially beneficial to be a Christian. In these places... Living for God puts them on the outside, not on the inside. So socially or with their family or with their career, it costs them something to be a Christian. And for the first time in our country's history, in 2020, the number of people who do not go to church outnumber the people that do. People who are following Jesus in America are now in the minority. Here are some statistics. 47% of people in America say that they go to church. 53% don't. And to give you an idea of what it was in 1999, 22 years ago, 70 people said that they went to church. 66% of a lot of our grandparents, the traditionalists, went to church. And 58% of my parents' generation, the baby boomers, went to church. 50% of Gen Xers go to church. That's me. And 36% of millennials go to church. That's a lot of the people that are in this room. In 2019, two years ago, 3,000 churches were started in America. 4,500 churches closed. Five years before that, it was the opposite. In 2014, 4,500 churches started and 3,000 closed. 
And it's flipped. And in every category, men, women, down. White, black, Hispanic, every race, down. Poor, rich, from the north, from the south, in Texas and Ohio and California, down. Going for the Bengals, down. Going for the Rams, down. Pick your category, down. There was a time, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to say that to discourage you. I'm trying to just kind of paint a picture of reality of what we're living in. Here's an encouraging thought as it relates to the church and the gospel and the fact that it's going forward. 100 years ago, 70% of Christians in the world lived in either the United States or in Europe. And now that has flipped so that now just 30% of Christians in the world live in the United States or Europe. 70% of Christians on the face of the earth live in Central America and Africa and Eastern Asia. The gospel is exploding in many places around the world. But what I'm trying to say is that in America, it used to be socially beneficial to be a Christian. And not so much. And it used to be accepted and it used to be celebrated. And not so much. And it is becoming increasingly difficult to be a Christian. Now Christians or churches have this reputation of being pharisaical, judgmental, bigoted, prideful. And let's be honest, some of that reputation is due to us and how the church has handled different things over the last hundred years. Not saying we're without fault and just kind of trying to paint a picture of what it's like. In the same way that Paul would have written to these people and said, I know that you're on the outside, but stay the course. I'm saying to you, guys, it's, it's getting to the point where Christians are on the outside. And Peter writes this to encourage us. Peter wrote to people who wanted to live a life for God in a culture that was hostile towards that idea. It was going to be challenging for them to stick to what they believed in. And over the course of our lives, we're only going to be able to relate to that more and more. Let me, let me tell you a little bit more about these people. In, uh, in I think, the rest of verse 1, P uh, Peter writes, To God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. This is modern-day Turkey, if you're curious. These are both Jews and Gentiles, people that have put their faith in Jesus, scattered all over the world. And, and what Peter calls them is he calls them exiles. In other words, aliens, strangers, living in a land that is not your home. He's saying, you are not home. You do not fit in. I, I don't, ex you shouldn't expect to. I, I imagine watching the Ohio State marching band. And because we're in church, we'll call it the best dang band in the land. Imagine watching them. I mean, you've, you've seen it on TV or you've seen it in person. It is amazing how it just doesn't seem like any one of them takes one step differently than the person next to them. It is just magical. And imagine you're watching the marching band and you see the, the, the couple different conductors with their wands doing their thing and everybody's in perfect formation making these pictures of Michael Jackson, Moonwalk. I mean, it's amazing. And imagine one person in the middle walking the other direction, totally out of line, running into other people and you zoom in and it, he's got AirPods on and he's listening to the Encanto soundtrack. 
He's tuned into something completely different. He's marching to the beat of a different drum. He looks out of place. He looks odd. And, and I, I, am, I just picture this because when you're tuned in with God and not tuned into the world, you will look odd. It will look different. Your life will look different. And, and maybe we'd even go so far to say that if we, we don't look odd and we don't look different, then perhaps we're not tuned in with God. And it's not to say that we need to get our own subgroup and dress differently and sing weird songs. I'm not talking about that kind of odd. The odd that I'm talking about is what we value and what we define as success and how quickly we forgive people and how we don't talk negatively about other people behind their back, how we seek to serve others. And as we'll see in 1 Peter, how we respond to major disappointment and how we respond to failure and how we respond to pain, that is the way in which a Christ follower looks odd because we do those things differently than somebody that is in tune with the world. So when Paul says, I'm writing to you exiles, he's saying, I'm acknowledging that your lives look different and you are on the outside and that is not, that has not come without consequence, but that is who you are because we are not home. And then he, he, he attributes these three, th these three things to this group of people. He says, you have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. This is his intro to the rest of what he's going to say. And right there... Just in those two verses, you see the Trinity, all three persons of the Trinity doing their thing, right? For those of you that were here in December, we talked about the Father and the Son and the Spirit. You see all three of them. You see the Father loves us. He chooses us according to his foreknowledge, and he didn't abandon us. And then you see through the, it says through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. In other words, the Spirit changes us. Sanctification is a Christianese word for becoming more like Jesus, and then you see that the Son saves us through his death on the cross. And then it, there's, that, there's that line that says, and to be sprinkled with his blood. And I kind of read that and thought, that sounds gross. I don't want that. <laughs> and and I, I, I looked into it and I read it. And there's a really cool uh, story of, of why Peter would have written that. And I, I didn't know this until just a couple weeks ago and I was reading about this. I think you'll think it's cool too. So... The sprinkled by, by his bloodline in the Old Testament in the book of Leviticus, uh, to be sprinkled with blood was a visual reminder to God and his people that a life had been given and that a sacrifice had been paid. And so blood in, in a lot of the ceremonies of the, when the Israelites were in the Old Testament, they would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. They would sprinkle blood on the altar. And in a couple different cases, they would sprinkle blood on people as this visual reminder that a sacrifice had been made. And in one instance, they would sprinkle blood on a person who had been healed from leprosy. If you were a person in the Old Testament that had leprosy, these were the consequences. You weren't even allowed to wear clothes that weren't torn up. You had to identify yourself as a leper by wearing unkept clothes. You couldn't keep your hair. If you were ever around anybody, you had to cover your mouth the entire time. And if you were around a large group of people, you had to verbally ex ex 
exclaim, unclean, unclean, unclean. You had to announce that. You'd be cast off. You weren't allowed to live in your family's home. You weren't even allowed to live in the city. And you were lucky if somebody else got leprosy because then you could have kind of your own leper colony outside of the city. And from time to time, somebody would be healed of leprosy and they would have a cleansing ceremony and they would sprinkle blood to represent that the fellowship between the person who had had leprosy, who was sick, their fellowship with the people had been restored. And in the same way, Peter, Peter references that because in the same way, the blood of Jesus being proverbially sprinkled upon us, it's this visual reminder that fellowship with God has been restored and we've been healed and we're welcomed back into the family. And so when Peter writes to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood, that means that, that we've been healed and cleansed and all of our sins have been totally forgiven. And he, he paints this picture of this leper coming back into the city, having been healed from their disease. That's the picture that Peter wants these people to see. And then I want you to look at this next verse. And it's amazing to me where Peter goes first. Because the persecution and the problems that these people were facing is unlike anything that you or I are facing. It's almost a joke to say that we're living in a hostile environment towards Christianity. I'm not saying it's a walk in the park, but it's a walk in the park compared to what they were going through. And Peter, the first thing that he does, he fixes their attention, not on their circumstances, but on something beyond this world. Look, he writes, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the middle of whatever you're going through, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In his great mercy, in his great mercy, he has given us new birth. We didn't earn new birth. We didn't get our act together and earn God's love back. He just gave us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Paul, excuse me, Peter is saying, guys, I get it. I just lived 35 years through what you're going through. I too feel like an odd outsider. I do feel like the odds are stacked against me in the same way that you do. But listen, praise be to God because above it all, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And so because of that, we have hope. Tim Keller says it this way, and I think it's worth quoting. Christianity rests not on whether you like Jesus' teaching, but whether or not Jesus rose from the dead. Christianity does not rest upon really anything other than that. It's, it's the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And if you're skeptical about the resurrection, it is not simply enough to dismiss it and say, well, it just couldn't happen. People can't rise from the dead, so there's just no way. They made it up. You can't just dismiss it. There's a couple questions that you actually have to answer if you're going to try to dismiss the, re the resurrection. Why, how in the world would Christianity have emerged so quickly with such power? Would people really have bought into it if the tomb wasn't empty? No group of Jews had ever worshipped a human being as God. What led them to do it with Jesus? 
Jews did not believe in divine men or individual resurrections. So what would cause them to change their entire worldview overnight? And how do you account for the hundreds of eyewitnesses who lived for decades maintaining their public testimony, many of them going to their death because of it, if Jesus hasn't, hadn't resurrected from the dead? And when I was listening to Tim Keller talk about this, Tim Keller is a pastor in New York City, somebody that I love to listen to and follow. He's a brilliant theologian who loves God. And he says, listen, if you're skeptical about the resurrection, that's understandable because people don't do that. People don't just rise from the dead. No one's ever done that since Jesus or before Jesus. No one ever resurrected themselves from the dead. But we all should want the resurrection to be true because the message of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is that the world actually matters and it's that we matter to God. The message of the resurrection is that there is hope for us in this life that is beyond what we're experiencing now. Because of the resurrection, Peter writes that we are given this inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. He's talking about heaven. He's talking about a heaven that we have to look forward to if we have faith in Jesus. And when he says perish, what he means is that it's going to be eternal. When he says that it will not spoil, that means that it will never go sideways. It will no, never go bad. There will be no pain. There will be no tears. There will be no sin. And that's going to stay that way. And it will never fade Meaning that when you get to heaven, the second day is going to be as good as the first. And the 10,000th day is going to be as good as the 5,000th day. It's not going to wear off. It's going to be paradise forever. And in a, it was, I don't know if it was a coincidence or providence, but last night, right before we were going to bed, my son Judah, who is three years old, looked at me and he said, Dad, I want to tell you something about heaven. I don't even know where he heard this. I don't know if Morgan was singing audio adrenaline to him or he heard it at BSF. I don't know. But he said, Dad, in heaven, I'm going to have my own room. And there are going to be toys. And Cooper, my daughter, whispered into his ear, and food. And he said, and food. And then he looked at me real serious. And he said, and Dad, and God. Real God's going to be there. I said, yeah. And then, I, I'm not, I kid you not, he said, and I'm pretty sure we're going to have a bunk bed. <laughs> I was like, buddy, you can have a bunk bed. Because to my son Judah, that is paradise. It is paradise. His own room with food and toys and a bunk bed. It's as good as it gets. And to us, you guys, heaven is going to be as good as it gets. It is going to be beyond your imagination. It is your paradise. So whatever you would say is going to be, that's what it's going to be like. And it's never going to perish or spoil or fade. Look, this inheritance is kept in heaven for you. Who through faith, not by doing good stuff, not by being a good person, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation, that's Jesus, that is ready to be revealed. He's coming in the last time. Only God knows when it's coming. I want to close this intro message, this whole series, by asking you a series of questions. And 
these are, these are some practical questions about hope. The first question I'd like to ask is, how would you answer this? What would make your life a lot better right now? What would be your, your quick answer to that? What would, be, what would make your life better? In other words, what are you hoping for? Or what are you hoping will happen? Where does your hope lie? What's it in? If you're anything like me, oftentimes my hope lies in a different set of circumstances. And when I talk to people, a lot of times that's what their hope lies in. And they say, one day I'll get to be married. Or one day we'll get to have kids. Or one day I'll finally get the recognition that I deserve. One day people will like me. One day I will like me. I will lose enough weight. I will look like that person. I will dress like that. I will have enough money to go there and I will like me. I will look in the mirror and like me. That's where our hope lies. That's what we would make different or make better. One day we'll have enough money to build the house that we want. One day if I stay here long enough, I will get the promotion that I deserve. My boss will finally recognize me. One day my marriage will have no problems. And we put our hope, if we're not careful, in a different set of circumstances. And here's the danger in that. This is why that's so dangerous. Because either way it goes, whether you get it or not, it's not really a win. Because if we get what we're hoping for, what happens is we end up being very disappointed because oftentimes that just leads us to hope for the next thing. You've experienced this, right? Where you hope for something and you get it and you immediately hope for something else. And so we end up very disappointed. If we don't get what we want, then we end up very discouraged. We end up feeling, have feelings of despair. And it often turns into a bitterness towards people and often towards God. And so it, it kind of is a lose-lose situation to put your hope in something that can perish, spoil, or fade. Because if you get it, you're disappointed. And if you don't, you're discouraged and filled with despair. And in both cases, there is no hope. There is no hope. And so the question is, is your hope in something that can't be taken away? A lot of times my hope, I would answer that question with something that can be taken away. There's a, uh, there's a guy named Viktor Frankl. He's a Jewish-Austrian psychoanalyst who survived the concentration camp at Auschwitz in World War II. And he wrote a book about his observations in the concentration camp called A Man's Search for Meaning. And he wrote in this book a lot about hope. And I want to read you something he said. He described that many times other inmates would simply give up. And he wrote this, and I want to read it to you. He said, when other prisoners would give up, Usually this happened quite suddenly. The symptoms of which were familiar to us experienced camp inmates. We all feared this moment for our friends. Usually it began one morning when the prisoner simply refused to get dressed or wash or go out to the parade grounds for inspection. 
no entreaties, no blows, no threats had any effect. They just lay there. They had given up. Nothing bothered them anymore because they had no hope. But he continues to write, many held on to the hope that if they could just get out of Auschwitz, they would recover their home, their career, their money, their achievements, and their position in society. That was their hope. And they got out and they made it. And then they realized that everything that they put their hope in had been irretrievably taken away. An astounding and shocking number of people sunk into a deep depression and took their own lives because their hopes had been shattered. And he writes that the ones who truly overcame Auschwitz were the ones who had a fixed hope on something beyond the world, something they held on to that could never be taken away. See, Peter's writing to these people and he's saying, listen, there's no, there's no question that this is hard. And as you're going to see as we go through the whole book of 1 Peter, that it isn't going to get any easier. Peter does not predict, hang on, things are going to get better for you. He says, hang on, things are going to get tougher for you. But we have hope because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. We have an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. And so as Christians, as Christ followers, we fix our hope on something that is beyond this world. And I'm just telling you the same thing, friends, Three Creeks family, that it's easy to feel despair or discouragement. It's easy to feel disappointed if our hope is in something that can perish spoil or fade, if our eyes are fixed on our immediate circumstances, just wanting them to change, that's just not going to be a win for anybody, no matter how it goes. I hope is over these 10 weeks that we're going to be here in First Peter, I hope that each week when we come in, we'd be reminded to fix our hope on something beyond this world, to, to put our hope in something that cannot perish, spoil, or fade. Closing questions. Does your hope rest in something that can never perish, spoil, or fade? In other words, is your hope in a different set of circumstances or is it in a Savior? Is it in a different set of circumstances or is it in a Savior? With Jesus and because of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and the opportunity that we have to have a new birth through faith in Jesus... We can have hope that transcends all of the circumstances. The, the, the book of 1 Peter, I'm telling you, is like, it's like the densest, chocolatiest cake you ever bit into. You know, it's like the whole, every verse you could preach a whole message on. And I, we're going to take communion here in a minute. And I wanted to read a verse in chapter 2. This, this is, uh, these two verses describe Jesus the night that he was betrayed, falsely accused, eventually crucified. I want, I want you to listen to this right before we take communion. In, in verse 23 of chapter 2, it says, When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. He could have, but he chose not to. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He gave it to God. And then it says that he himself 
bore our sins in his body on the cross, on the tree, so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds, we have been healed. I want to say that again. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Not his sins, our sins. He bore them for us in his body so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. And by his wounds, we are healed. So once a month here at Three Creeks, we like to take communion, the bread and cup, on a Sunday morning. And it's to remind us of what Jesus did for us. Communion isn't about us, it's about Jesus. When Jesus said, you should do this, he said, do it in remembrance of me, not do it in remembrance of you. He said, do it in remembrance of me. And so once a month, we just stop and we just take a few minutes to take communion and fix our eyes on what Jesus did for us on the cross. And we have something that we do here at Three Creeks. It's, it's just the, the language that we like to think about as we take communion. When we take that bread and we take that juice and we dip the bread in the cup and we take it back to our seats, I want to challenge you to just for 30 seconds to do these three things, 30 seconds each. One, look back. Reflect on what Jesus did for you and, and look back even on your own life over the last couple weeks and, and reflect on your own life. Look back. Do that for 30 seconds. And then look around. Be reminded that you're not the only one with sins that need forgiven. Be reminded that you're not alone, that you're not isolated, that we have a church family that needs communion too. Look around. And then for 30 seconds at the end, look ahead. Close your eyes. Picture that bunk bed. Picture heaven. Picture the marriage supper of the Lamb. Picture what's coming, the inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. And when you've done those three things, then we take communion in remembrance of Jesus. And so the lights are going to go out. There's a couple tables there. There's some stuff in the back. The instructions will be on the screen for you in case you need them. We're going to turn the lights down. We're going to take communion. And then we're going to get to sing two more songs together. There is hope. And I'm excited about going through 1 Peter with you. Let's take communion. Thanks for listening to the Three Creeks Church Podcast. To find out more about our church, to give online, or to attend a service, visit threecreekschurch.com. Thank you.